Welcome to Restoring Memory, a COVID calls exploration of the first two COVID years. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters, and since March 16th, 2020, I've been the host of COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. This is episode 488, March 16th, 2022, a time for memorial. I'm going to read three obituaries in this memorial episode. The headline, Washoe's youngest COVID-19 victim died alone. His siblings could only say goodbye via Zoom. This was written by Siban McAndrew and appeared in the Reno Gazette Journal. Just clarifying the date, it appeared in the Reno Gazette Journal, May 1st, 2020. Washoe's youngest COVID-19 victim died alone. His siblings could only say goodbye via Zoom. Ian McKelleny asked his brother at least a dozen times what he wanted for his birthday. The 18-year-old who liked video games and dreamed of becoming a police officer was going to use the money he saved from doing yard work for a neighbor to buy Charles Coons the best birthday present. It didn't matter that it was all the money he had. Ian was always the kid who put everyone else first. I just kept telling him, I don't need anything. I just want to see you. Charles told Ian on Monday, April 20th, 2020, they had been quarantined away from each other amid the coronavirus pandemic. You're taking care of yourself, right? Charles asked. Ian sounded as if he had a stuffy nose. Charles, who was turning 29, was a little worried. Diagnosed with diabetes when he was nine, Ian struggled. He was in a coma for weeks a few years ago after his blood sugar dropped too low. He also had seizures, but he always bounced back. Always, Charles said. Ian insisted he was fine. Three days later, Ian's lungs would be taken over by the coronavirus. The paramedics arrived at his house. He wasn't breathing. He went into cardiac arrest. At the hospital, he tested positive for COVID-19. Ian's mom, Jana McKelleny, died January 26, 2020, from head injuries in a suspected domestic violence attack in Virginia City. Ian wanted to make sure his younger brother, Aiden, 14, was okay. He worried about his older brother, Aaron, who's 20. He tried to comfort his sister, Nikki Holliday, who flew from Cincinnati to Virginia City to help bury their mother. And Charles flew from Los Angeles to stay and help take care of his brothers. Ian, who was described by his brothers as shy but brilliant, felt guilty about their mother's death. He felt responsible, of course. It wasn't at all his fault, but he wished he could have stopped things, Charles said. Five children of Jenna McKelleny looked to each other for support, vowing to get involved in domestic violence causes. It was us against the world, Charles said. Siblings agreed they would all be together for Christmas at older sister Nikki's house in Cincinnati. Christmas was special for their mom, and the first one after her death would be hard. My mom's death was hard, but she had a chance to live it, Nikki said. My brother doesn't get that chance. None of us get to see him grow up. He doesn't get to fall in love and have a family. Nikki, who works in a veteran's hospital, says she's frustrated that some aren't taking the coronavirus seriously. There's so much we don't know about this virus yet, she said. One day you're fine, and the next day you aren't. One day Ian was fine, and the next day he wasn't. His father... Brett McKelleny said Ian didn't have any of the typical symptoms. No fever, he said. His symptoms seemed gastrointestinal and like diabetes. 
His father has no idea where he may have contracted the virus. Ian's younger brother has also tested positive. Ian's father has tested negative. Ian was excited to be joining Job Corps, a job training program for young adults in May. He was studying to get his driver's license. He'd gotten pretty good, his father said, of letting him practice driving a few times. And Ian was talking more and more about becoming a police officer. Charles thinks that was because Ian saw the good in law enforcement when he had medical emergencies and how police helped the family after their mother's death. I kept telling him he could do it, Nikki said. Don't let anything stop you. Aiden, Charles, and Aaron raced to the hospital as paramedics were trying to save their brother's life. They could only wait outside the hospital. No visitors were allowed in to prevent spread of the coronavirus. Nikki prayed for a miracle. Charles, Aaron, and Aiden, paralyzed in fear, didn't believe doctors when they said there was little chance Ian would survive. We just hoped they were wrong, Aaron said. If we could have been there, none of us would have left his side, Charles said. We were scared. He felt alone. We prayed our mom was there with him. I hope there is one takeaway from their brother's death. I hope people start taking this seriously, Charles said. You don't know what it is like to watch your brother die from a computer screen. The story was Washoe's youngest COVID-19 victim died alone. His siblings could only say goodbye via Zoom. The death of Ian McElhaney. Headline, George Floyd from I Want to Touch the World to I Can't Breathe. This is written by Manny Fernandez and Audra D.S. Birch and appeared in the New York Times April 20th, 2021. Dateline Houston. It was the last day of 11th grade at Jack Yates High School in Houston, nearly three decades ago. A group of close friends on their way home were contemplating what senior year and beyond would bring. They were black teenagers on the precipice of manhood. They asked one another, did they wanted what they asked one another did they want to do with their lives the world now knows george perry floyd jr through his final harrowing moments as he begged for air his face wedged for nearly nine minutes between a city street and a police officer's knee Mr. floyd's gasping death immortalized on a bystander's cell phone video during the twilight hours of memorial day has powered two weeks of sprawling protests across america against police brutality he has been memorialized in Minneapolis, where he died, in North Carolina, where he was born, and in Houston, where thousands stood in the unrelenting heat to file past his gold coffin and bid him farewell in the city where he spent most of his life. Many of those who attended the public viewing said they saw Mr. Floyd as one of them, a fellow Houstonian who could have been their father, their brother, or their son. This is something that Touched really close, said Kina Arduin, age 43, a nurse who stood in a line that stretched far from the church entrance. This could have been anybody in my family. Now a timestamp in the prolonged history of violence against black people, Mr. Floyd's killing has inspired people of every race to march in the streets and kneel, chanting Black Lives Matter in hundreds of cities and small towns. But Mr. Floyd, age 46, was more than the nearly nine-minute graphic video of his death. He was more than the 16 utterances captured in the recording of some version of I Can't Breathe. He was an outsized man who dreamed equally big, unswayed by the setbacks of his life. Growing up in one of Houston's poorest neighborhoods, he enjoyed a star turn as a basketball and football player with three catches for 18 yards in a state championship game his junior year. 
He was the first of his siblings to go to college, and he did so on an athletic scholarship. But he returned to Texas after a couple of years and lost nearly a decade to arrests and incarcerations on mostly drug-related offenses. By the time he left his hometown for, a, for good a few years ago, moving 1,200 miles to Minneapolis for work, he was ready for a fresh start. When he traveled to Houston in 2018 for his mother's funeral, they died two years, one week apart. He told his family that Minneapolis had begun to feel like home. He had his mother's name tattooed on his belly, a fact that was noted in his autopsy. Mr. Floyd was born in Fayetteville, North Carolina to George Perry and Larcinia Floyd, but he was really from a Houston neighborhood called The Bricks. After his parents split up, his mother moved him and his siblings to Texas, where he grew up in the red brick world of CUNY Homes, a low-slung 564-unit public housing complex in Houston's third ward that was named for Norris Wright CUNY, one of the most politically powerful black men in the state in the late 1800s. Mr. Floyd's mother, who was known as Sissy, was among the leaders of CUNY Homes and an active member of the resident council. She raised her own children and, at times, some of her grandchildren and some of her neighbors' children, too. As a child, Mr. Floyd was known in the bricks as Perry, his middle name. As he grew, so, too, did his nicknames. He was Big Floyd, known as much for his big personality as his sense of humor. Mr. Floyd's height, he was more than six feet tall in middle school, created a kind of mystique. Who could just imagine this tall kid as a freshman in high school walking the hallways? We were like, man, who is that guy? He was a jokester, always laughing and cracking jokes, said Herbert Mouton, age 45, who played on the Yates High School football team with Mr. Floyd. We were talking the other day with classmates trying to think, had Floyd even ever had a fight before? We couldn't recall it. Mr. Mouton said that after the loss of a big game, Mr. Floyd would let the team sulk for a few minutes before telling a joke to lighten the mood. He never wanted us to feel bad for too long, he said. Mr. Floyd saw sports as the path out of the bricks, and so he leaned into his size and athletic prowess in a sports-obsessed state. As a tight end, Mr. Floyd helped power his football team to the state championship game in 1992. One exhilarating moment that was captured on video and circulated after his death, Mr. Floyd soars above an opponent in the end zone to catch a touchdown pass. After graduating from high school, Mr. Floyd left Texas on a basketball scholarship to South Florida Community College, now South Florida State College. I was looking for a power forward, and he fit the bill. He was athletic, and I liked the way he handled the ball, said George Walker, who recruited Mr. Floyd. He was a starter and scored 12 to 14 points and 7 to 8 rebounds. Mr. Floyd transferred two years later, in 1995, to Texas A&M University's Kingsville campus. But he did not stay long. He returned home to Houston and to the Third Ward without a degree. Known locally as the Trey, the Third Ward, south of downtown, is among the city's historic black neighborhoods, and it has been featured in the music of one of the most famous people to grow up there, Beyonce. At times, life in the bricks was unforgiving. Poverty, drugs, gangs, and violence scarred many Third Ward families. Several of Mr. Floyd's classmates did not live past their 20s. Soon after returning, Mr. Floyd started rapping. He appeared as Big Floyd on mixtapes created by DJ Screw, 
a fixture in Houston's hip-hop scene in the 1990s. His voice deep, his rhymes purposefully delivered at a slow-motion clip. Mr. Floyd rapped about chopping blades, driving cars with oversized rims, and his third ward pride. For about a decade, starting in the early 20s, in the early 2000s, Mr. Floyd had a string of arrests in Houston, according to court and police records. One of those arrests for a $10 drug deal in 2004 cost him 10 months in a state jail. Four years later, Mr. Floyd pleaded guilty to aggravated robbery with a deadly weapon and spent four years in prison. He was released in 2013 and returned home again, this time to begin the long, hard work of trying to turn his life around, using his missteps as a lesson for others. Stephen Jackson, a retired professional basketball player from Port Arthur, Texas, met Mr. Floyd a year or two before Mr. Jackson joined the NBA. They had sports in common, Mr. Jackson said, but they also looked alike, enough to call each other twin as a term of endearment. I tell people all the time the only difference between me and George Floyd, the only difference between me and my twin, the only difference between me and Georgie is the fact that I had more opportunities, he said, later adding, if George would have had more opportunities, he might have been a pro athlete in two sports. After prison, Mr. Floyd became even more committed to his church, inspired by a daughter, Gianna Floyd, Born after he was released, Mr. Floyd spent a lot of time at Resurrection Houston, a church that holds many of its services on the basketball court in the middle of CUNY homes. He would set up chairs and drag out to the center of the court the service's main attraction, the baptism tub. He'd baptize people on the court, and we've got this big old horse trough, and he'd drag that thing by himself onto that court, said Patrick Nguolo a lawyer and pastor of Resurrection Houston, who described Mr. Floyd as a father figure for younger community residents. Eventually, Mr. Floyd became involved in a Christian program with a history of taking men to Minnesota from the Third Ward and providing them with drug rehabilitation and job placement services. When you say, I'm going to Minnesota, everybody knows you're going to this church work program out of Minnesota, Mr. Nguolo said, and you're getting out of this environment. His move would be a fresh start, Mr. Nguolo said, his start one of redemption. In Minnesota, Mr. Floyd lived in a red clappered duplex with two roommates on the eastern edge of St. Louis Park, a leafy, gentrifying Minneapolis suburb. Beginning sometime in 2017, he worked as a security guard at the Salvation Army's Harbor Light Center, the downtown homeless shelter and transitional housing facility. Staff members got to know Mr. Floyd as someone with a steady temperament, whose instinct to protect employees included walking them to their cars. It's a special person to work in the shelter environment, said Brian Mullahan, Executive Director of in Development at the Salvation Army Northern Division. Every day you are bombarded with heartache and brokenness. Even as Mr. Floyd settled into his position, he looked for other jobs. While working at the Salvation Army, he answered a job ad for a bouncer at Conga Latin Bistro, a restaurant and dance club. Giovanni Thernstrom, the owner, said Mr. Floyd quickly became part of the work family. He came in early and left late, and though he tried, he never quite mastered salsa dancing. Right away, I liked his attitude, said Mr. Thernstrom, who was Mr. Floyd's landlord. He would shake your hand with both hands. He would bend down to greet you. 
Mr. Floyd kept a Bible by his bed. Often he read it aloud, and despite his height, Mr. Floyd would fold himself in the hallway to frequently pray with Teresa Scott, one of his roommates. He had this real cool way of talking. His voice reminded me of Ray Charles. He'd talk fast, and he was so soft-spoken, said Alvin Monago, 55, who met Mr. Floyd at a 2016 softball game. They bonded instantly and became roommates. He had this low-pitched bass. You had to get used to his accent to understand him. He'd say, right on, right on, right on. Mr. Floyd spent the final weeks of his life recovering from the coronavirus, which he learned he had in early April 2020. After he was better, he started spending more time with his girlfriend, and he had not seen his roommates in a few weeks, Mr. Monago said. Millions of people, his roommates in the city that was to be his fresh start, watched the video that captured Mr. Floyd taking his last breaths. They heard him call out for his late mother, Mama, Mama. On Tuesday morning, 15 days after that anguished cry, Mr. Floyd will be laid to rest beside her. The headline was George Floyd from I Want to Touch the World to I Can't Breathe. This was published in the New York Times, April 20th, 2021 by Manny Fernandez and Audra D.S. Birch. The headline is Lessons from My Mother. She endured the horrors of the Holocaust with her faith intact, raised a family, died of COVID-19 in a Long Island nursing home. This was published June 8, 2020 by Zev Friedman and appeared in the Times of Israel. My mother, Felicia Friedman, née Deutscher, was 13 years old when the Nazis invaded Poland in September of 1939. She endured unimaginable challenges, tortures, and horrors until she was liberated in 1945. Shortly after the Nazis marched into Krakow, Poland, her Jewish school was surrounded by Nazis and all of the students, including her, were chased out. She recalled trying to escape the clutches of a Nazi running after her, screaming, Jew, I will kill you. It is hard to imagine the terror that she felt as a child, narrowly escaping his attack. The fear and terror that she felt lasted well past the time it took her to flee and hide in safety. Undoubtedly, if we view these events in real time, we can understand a fraction of the trauma that she and other Jews felt, not just for minutes, but for weeks, months, years, and a lifetime. She made it safely back home, only to have Nazis barge in and ransack her family's apartment four days later. She and her entire family stood in terror as everything of value, including tablecloths and linens, were forcibly stolen from the apartment. Short time later, she was separated from her family and sent to Plasho, a forced labor camp where she witnessed her six-year-old cousin being shot to death by the notorious Nazi Eamon Goeth. During a weekly break, she joined a conversation with other teenagers in which one girl was lamenting their horrific situation and proclaimed that she did not believe in God. When no one else challenged her words, my mother responded by declaring that God existed, but that their horrific situation was caused by man choosing to be evil. My father, her husband-to-be, overheard the conversation and was very impressed by the remarks of this young girl. They agreed to meet again if they were both able to survive the war. My mother was a woman of deep and abiding faith, even at a young age. She exhibited the courage and strength to speak out under the most difficult of circumstances. 
This underscores the importance of being willing and able to speak out if one perceives a wrong, even or perhaps specifically when there is peer pressure against your opinion. My mother was sent by cattle car to Auschwitz. During the terror-stricken trip, she and the hundreds of others packed into the train did not receive any food rations, water, or the dignity of a private bathroom. Twice, her entire barracks was sent to the gas chamber. Once the gas ran out and the Nazis sent them back to their bunk, and another time, a group of quote-unquote gypsies arrived in Auschwitz and that Nazis sent my mother's barracks back so that they could gas the gypsies instead. I have no doubt that on both occasions, she and the others were gripped with fear, thinking, are they going to call us again in a half hour in the middle of the night or tomorrow morning? During her interviews with the Spielberg Foundation, my mother recounted that she was the victim of terrible beatings by a Nazi guard in the concentration camp. In particular, he picked on her because her maiden name was Deutscher, and he objected to the fact that a Jewish girl could have a German-sounding name. During one of these personal beatings, when she was clearly in pain, the Nazi barked at her, beg, for beg me for mercy and I will stop. She courageously decided not to give the Nazi the satisfaction of seeing a Jew begging and endured a continuous beating until his whip broke after 104 painful blows. In January 1945, as the Soviet troops approached from the east, the Germans took the Jews under their control on a horrific death march. The Soviets liberated Auschwitz on January 27, 1945, but my mother and thousands of others already had been forcibly transferred to another death camp. The Jews of Auschwitz were subjected to days of marching in the bitter cold of Poland, guarded by gun-toting Nazis and their attack dogs. Jews who had the misfortune of collapsing in the snow due to exhaustion or hunger were either shot or mauled to death by the dogs. When asked by the Spielberg interviewer what she might have done to merit surviving, my mom responded, I don't know, but perhaps it was because I shared my one piece of bread with another Jewish girl who was about to faint. My mother survived the war, returned home, heartbroken and depressed to find that her parents, siblings and relatives were all murdered by the Nazis. Miraculously, she found information about the young man, my father, who had survived the war and was sick with typhus in Theresienstadt concentration camp. She made her way from Poland to Czechoslovakia, posed as a nurse, and helped my father survive. After their survival, they both volunteered to identify in a lineup Eamon Goth, the notorious Nazi commandant of the Plaszow camp. They also agreed to relieve the horrors that they experienced by bringing testimony against Goth. They also agreed to relive the horrors that they experienced by bringing testimony against Goth. They married in October 1945 and had almost 70 years of wonderful marriage until my father's passing in 2015. My mother and father had what one would call a storybook marriage. They were deeply in love for 70 years, and I never heard them argue with one another. I always wondered why they rarely, if ever, spoke to our family about their horrible experiences during the Holocaust. I surmised that it was because it was too painful to talk about, although I later learned that was only part of the reason, as they often spoke about their experiences in Florida, where they lived for 30 years, speaking to local students, teachers, and community organizations about their experiences. In listening to the testimony they gave on the Spielberg interview tapes, 
Both my father and my mother made it clear that it was a conscious decision on their part to prevent my sister and I from hearing about their pain and suffering, which might lead to our sadness and despair. The interviewer asked my mother if grandchildren, of which she had nine at the time, ever asked about the numbers on her arm. She replied that when they asked about the numbers, she did not disclose it was the Nazi attempt to dehumanize the Jews in Auschwitz, and instead said she told the little ones that it was her phone number, which she didn't want to forget. My mother, who had endured so much and survived the war, died of COVID-19 in a nursing home on Long Island. This followed a New York State directive that adult care facilities were required to accept patients with COVID-19. She will be sorely missed, but her life lessons of honesty, courage, Jewish pride, concern for others, and personal sacrifice continue to endure and inspire. The story was Lessons from My Mother, published in the Times of Israel by Zev Friedman. The story appeared June 8, 2020. Thank you for listening to this special memorial episode of COVID Calls. If you're new to COVID Calls, you'll find that in almost every episode, I have read an obituary at the beginning of the program as a way to bring some humanity to this shared tragedy and disaster that people around the world are experiencing. It's been humbling and to do so and an honor, and I appreciate everyone's listening to these three quite extraordinary lives that I had a chance to share with you today. You've been listening to a special Restoring Memory episode of COVID Calls. And the next episode will start in just a few minutes with Dr. Gabriel Boslett. See you next time on COVID Calls.